Hi, Dave Bremer here. This is For the Record Program number 1198. The Narco-Fascism of Chiang Kai-shek and the Kuomintang, Part 5. This is being recorded on August 11th of the year 2021. Uh, very quickly, before we get into the subject material, three links. All are at the top of each program description and at the top of each food for uh, each food for thought post. One link will enable you to subscribe to the comments, most of them made by our brilliant contributing editor Terrafractal, uh, some by other intelligent listeners. Another link will enable you to subscribe to the WFMU podcast of For the Record, Sister Station WFMU is podcasting the program, and if you would like to subscribe to those podcasts, then you can do so, again, by that link. Uh, the other link, the third link, will enable you to obtain the 32-gigabyte flash drive containing all of my roughly 42 years' worth of work on the air, plus a mini-library of old anti-fascist books. I get no money whatsoever from that project. Now, uh, we are going to uh, return to where we left off in our last program. I'm doing a long series about the history of modern China. Modern perhaps belongs in quotes. Uh, going back to the 19th century and the Opium Wars, and now moving into the and it is an appropriate description, the narco-fascism of Chiang Kai-shek's Kuomintang. As a kid growing up, and I'm an old geezer of uh, almost 72, uh, Chiang Kai-shek was represented to me, really to, to America, as uh, this heroic figure struggling against the uh, communist Chinese, and uh, a, a, a nice... A major element of that uh, PR came from publishing giant Henry Luce, and we'll be going into Henry Luce and his uh, loose uh, treatment of the facts, pun intended, uh, later on in this program. As we looked at in our last broadcast, and as we will pick up with in this one, uh, the foundation of Chiang Kai-shek's government, and it was an explicitly fascist government, as we will get into uh, in uh, this series. The foundation was the narcotics trade. Opium was basically legalized. It was introduced in a big way into China uh, by the British, courtesy of their opium wars, an, an example of what, uh, for lack of a better term, might be called narco-imperialism. The term gunboat diplomacy was coined during those opium wars, which not only jackhammered open China for British trade, the narcotics trade, uh, corrected a huge trade imbalance uh, with England and Europe in general, and uh, it also did terrible damage to the Chinese people. It also gave Britain the colony of Hong Kong as well. Uh, the enormous opium-slash-narcotics trade in China uh, became the province 
of the Green Gang of Shanghai under a brilliant and sinister, altogether lethal individual named uh, Du Yuasheng or Chu Yuasheng. You'll see it sometimes with a D, sometimes with a T, uh, the last name capital Y-U-E-H hyphen S-H-E-N-G. He was the fellow who... Uh, reorganized the opium trade in China into a cartel under the auspices of the Green Gang and gradually gobbled up uh, the other organized crime syndicates. Either they knuckled under to him or they uh, joined with him. And in time, Tu Yuasheng became the single most powerful figure in China. And Chiang Kai-shek and his Kuomintang were basically a, polit- a political front for Tu's uh, organization. The major elements of Chiang Kai-shek's government, uh, which not only drove it in terms of its operations, but were also responsible for the uh, tremendous ideological receptivity of the U.S. and the West in general to Chiang Kai-shek from an economic standpoint and an organizational standpoint was the narcotics trade, the opium, uh, morphine, and heroin trades under the Green Gang. Uh, from an ideological standpoint, uh, the doctrinaire anti-communism of the Green Gang and uh, of Chiang Kai-shek's Kuomintang, which was again a political front for the Green Gang, and also, as we will see, the conversion of both Chiang Kai-shek and Tu Yuasheng, not only at least to Christianity, played very well in the West. The aforementioned Henry Luce was not only enamored of the anti-communism of the Kuomintang and Chiang Kai-shek, he was uh, infatuated with the Christianity and professed Christianity of both Chiang Kai-shek and Tu Yuasheng. And as well, uh, the Sung family, uh, that's S-O-O-N-G, who... Uh, uh, a remarkable family. We'll say more about them in a minute. Uh, the Sung family and T.V. Sung in particular uh, were the type of business tycoon who appealed to Henry Luce, who uh, idolized fascists and saw the business tycoon, the mega tycoon, as sort of an American iteration of uh, the fascist strong man. We're going to uh, begin where we left off, and that is with a summary of Chiang Kai-shek and his narco-fascist government by Douglas Valentine. Douglas Valentine is a giant in this field. Uh, he, his work has been sadly underrepresented in these archives simply due to the limitations of time. He did arguably the best book on the Phoenix program, did a brilliant two-part series, uh, a two-volume series on the American narcotics trade and the, quote, regulation of it, uh, really, well, the ostensible uh, law enforcement against, but really the regulation of the narcotics trade, the strength of the wolf and the strength of the pack. And uh, in his book, The CIA as Organized Crime, Douglas Valentine uh, had a section about Chiang Kai-shek. That book, by the way, was published in softcover by the Clarity Press, at C-L-A-R-I-T-Y-M, copyright 2017, by Douglas Valentine. 
In the 1920s, the U.S. threw its weight behind Chiang Kai-shek, whose Kuomintang party was fighting the communists and several other warlords for control of China. The U.S. was competing with the other colonial nations for control of China, which had a cheap labor force and represented billions in profits for U.S. corporations and investors. The problem was that the Kuomintang supported itself through the opium trade. It's well documented in the diplomatic cables between the U.S. government and its representatives in China. Historians Kinder Kandir and Walker said the commissioner of the Bureau of Narcotics, Harry Anslinger, quote, clearly knew about the ties between Chang and opium dealers, unquote. Anslinger knew that Shanghai was, quote, the prime producer and exporter to the illicit world drug markets, unquote, through a syndicate controlled by Tu Yuasheng, a crime lord who facilitated Chang's bloody ascent to power in 1927. As early as 1932, Anslinger knew that Chang's finance minister was Du's protector. That was H.H. H. Kung at various times, and also T.V. Sung, the aforementioned T.V. Sung. H.H. H. Kung was T.V. Sung's brother-in-law. He married a Ling Sung, T.V. Sung's sister, or one of them. She was a true sort of female Machiavelli, a Lucretia Borgia, very intelligent, very cunning, very lethal, reported to have uh, operated teams of assassins, and the real power behind H.H. H. Kung. It was A. Ling Sung who arranged for her sister Mei Ling Sung to marry Chiang Kai-shek and become the storied Madame Chiang Kai-shek. Continuing with uh, Douglas Valentine's account. Speaking of Anslinger, as early as 1932, Anslinger knew that Chang's finance minister was Du's protector. He'd had evidence since 1929 that American Tongs were, were receiving Kuomintang narcotics and distributing it to the mafia. Middlemen worked with opium merchants, gangsters like two Japanese occupation forces in Manchuria, and Dr. Lansing Ling, quote, who supplied narcotics to Chinese officials traveling abroad, unquote. In 1938, Chiang kai appointed Dr. Ling head of his narcotic control department. In October of 1934, the Treasury attaché in Shanghai, quote, submitted reports implicating Chiang Kai-shek in the heroin trade to North America, unquote. In 1935, the attaché reported that the superintendent of maritime customs in Shanghai was acting as agent for Chiang Kai-shek in arranging for the preparation and shipment of the stuff to the, to the United States. These reports reached Anslinger's desk, so he knew which Kuomintang officials and trade missions were delivering dope to American tongs and which American mafia drug rings were buying it from them. He knew the tongs were kicking back a percentage of the profits to finance Chang's regime. After Japanese forces invaded Shanghai in August of 1937, Anslinger was even less willing to deal honestly with the situation. By then, Du was sitting on Shanghai's municipal board with William J. Keswick. Du found sanctuary in Hong Kong where he was welcomed by a cabal of free-trading British colonialists whose shipping and banking companies earned huge revenues by allowing Du to push his drugs on the hapless Chinese. 
The revenues were truly immense. According to Colonel Joseph Stilwell, the U.S. military attaché in China, in 1935 there were, quote, 8 million Chinese heroin and morphine addicts and another 72 million Chinese opium addicts, unquote. Uh, Colonel Stilwell later became Joseph, uh, General Joseph Stilwell, the military commander in the China Theater, and someone who was fiercely critical of Chiang Kai-shek and was ultimately replaced uh, because he would not collaborate with Chiang Kai-shek. Uh, by the way, Sterling Seagrave, who wrote this book, and uh, who, by the way, was uh, targeted for assassination by a Kuomintang hit team that was assembled in Taiwan after being tipped off about its uh, operation by a high-level CIA official. He and his wife Peggy uh, retreated to a sailboat and lived on a sailboat in various places to escape assassination. Uh, Sterling Seagrave's father, Gordon Seagrave, was the chief surgeon for General Stilwell. Continuing with Harry Anslinger. Anslinger tried to minimize the problem by lying and saying that Americans were not affected. But the final decisions were made by his bosses in Washington, and from their national security perspective, the profits enabled the Kuomintang to purchase $31 million worth of fighter planes from arms dealer William Pauley to fight the communists, and that trumped any moral dilemmas about trading with the Japanese or getting Americans addicted. It is all documented. Check the sources I cite in my books. Plus, U.S. congressmen and senators in the China lobby were profiting from the guns for drug business, too. They got kickbacks in the form of campaign funds, and in exchange, they looked away as long as Anslinger told them the dope stayed overseas. After 1949, the China lobby manipulated public hearings, and Anslinger cooked the books to make sure that the People's Republic was blamed for all narcotics coming out of the Far East. Everyone made money, and after 1947, the operation was run out of Taiwan with CIA assistance. The U.S. government's involvement in the illicit drug business was institutionalized during World War II. While serving on General Joseph Stilwell's staff in 1944, Foreign Service Officer John Service, S-E-R-V-I-C-E, reported from Kunming, the city where the Flying Tigers and the OSS were headquartered, that the nationalists were totally dependent on opium and, quote, incapable of solving China's problems, unquote. Service's reports contributed to the Truman administration's decision not to come to Chang's rescue at the end of the war. In retaliation, Chang's intelligence chief, Tai Li, nicknamed the Himmler of China, had his agents in America accuse Service of leaking the Kuomintang's battle plans to a leftist newsletter. Service was arrested. After service was cleared of any wrongdoing, the China lobby persisted in attacking his character for the next six years. He was subjected to eight loyalty hearings and dismissed from the State Department in 1951. Service's persecution was fair warning that anyone linking the nationalist Chinese to drug drug smuggling would at the minimum, be branded a communist sympathizer and his reputation ruined. 
That is how the U.S. drug operation is still protected today, although security for the operation has improved and whistleblowers are smeared in other ways. Parenthetically, just look what happened to Gary Webb when he reported on the Contra-CIA cocaine traffic. Continuing, after World War II, the business of managing the government's involvement in the illicit narcotics trade was given to the CIA because it could covertly conduct operations for, among others, the nationalist Chinese in Taiwan. The CIA also relocated and supplied one of Chang's armies to Burma. This Kuomintang army supported itself to the opium trade, and the CIA flew the opium to places where it was converted to heroin and sold to the mafia. The other bureaucracies, the military and the departments of state, justice, and treasury, provided protection along with the China lobby congressmen and senators who controlled the little information that was made public. Uh, and I will note that as we proceed into this series, uh, even after uh, Chiang Kai-shek and his Kuomintang decamped to uh, Formo- the island of Formosa, uh, where they became the uh, nation of Taiwan, uh, they continued to collaborate very, very closely with the Japanese. That was a collaboration that actually began during the Sino-Japanese War in the 1930s, which was ultimately part of what became World War II. We're going to talk a little bit about that in uh, a partial review of the book Gold Warriors by Sperling and Peggy Seagrave that we have used many times over the years and that I will be using again in this series. This is from a review by the same brilliant Douglas Valentine from Counterpunch magazine of September 25th of 2003. Again, this is a review of Gold Warriors. Gold Warriors is more than a book about Japan's serious, sober, and deliberate plundering of Asia's treasure from 1895 until 1945 and its collusion after the war with American officials to recover and use the loot as a secret political action slush fund to promote right-wing regimes. Gold Warriors, America's secret recovery of Yamashita's gold, is a journey into the darkest recesses in history and the human soul. Authors Peggy and Sterling Seagrave not only unravel one of the greatest crimes and cover-ups ever, they reveal something new and startling about the depths of human depravity and barbarity and the human capacity for deceit. The book begins in 1895 with a fascinating account of the grisly assassination of Korea's Queen Min by terrorists posing as business agents of Japanese companies. The clever coup d'etat provides Japan with official deniability, and the confusion that follows provides the Japanese with a pretext for its military occupation and plundering of Korea. Japan's brutal conquest of Korea foretells how it will achieve one victory after another in Far East Asia over the ensuing 45 years. By the way, we talked about that in the For the Record programs 1140 and 1141. We came back to it and its aftermath in 1142. 
The next victory occurs in 1904 when claiming Japan defeats Russia and annexes southern Manchuria, and, and annexes southern Manchuria. Manchuria, unlike Korea, has little gold worth stealing, but it is rich in natural resources, so the Japanese settle in for the long haul and slowly develop Manchuria over several decades. They build roads and create industries, and more importantly, they work with corrupt warlords and Chinese gangsters associated with Chiang Kai-shek's Kuomintang party to transform Manchuria into a vast poppy field. By 1937, the Japanese and their gangster and Kuomintang associates are responsible for 90% of the world's illicit narcotics. They turn Manchu Emperor Pu Yi into an addict and open thousands of opium dens as a way of suppressing the Chinese. When subversion and propaganda don't get the job done, they commit unspeakable atrocities. In late 1937 and early 1938, the Japanese slaughter an estimated 350,000 Chinese civilians and prisoners of war in Nanking. Tens of thousands of women and girls are raped, and many are mutilated or murdered. Nanking foretells what will happen as Japan expands its empire to include Indochina, Malaysia, Taiwan, and the Philippines. It's also with the rape of Nanking that the authors introduce the main characters in the book, the Japanese soldiers, crime lords, and officials who by the December of 1941 attack on Pearl Harbor realize they have bitten off more than they can chew and begin their retreat to Japan. A small inner circle becomes responsible for securing billions of dollars worth of gold, platinum, cultural artifacts, and precious gems stolen over the previous 45 years. The Japanese call this operation Golden Lily, and the Seagraves do not shy away from naming those involved. They finger General Doehara and Japan's top Yakuza gangster Kadami Yoshio, both of whom worked closely with Chinese drug smugglers in Manchuria and Shanghai. Golden Lily's overall boss is Prince Chichibu, one of Emperor Hiroshito's three brothers. The Kempei Tai, the Japanese Secret Service, were Golden Lily's first agents, moving six thousand metric tons of gold from Nanking to Japan in 1938. But most of the Golden Lily treasure was buried in the Philippines by General Yamashita, and it is in the Philippines that most of the action in the book takes place. And again, we've spoken about Golden Lily, about Gold Warriors in many programs. We will be coming back to key sections of that in this series. Uh, for our purposes here, uh, it is important to note the collaboration between the Japanese and the Kuomintang and the unwillingness of Chiang Kai-shek to uh, fight against the Japanese. He was marshalling his military resources to fight against Mao Zedong's communists. And uh, that endeared him to the U.S., also to uh, Mussolini, to Hitler, and to the Japanese. Uh, it ultimately was a major factor in uh, helping to bring the Chinese communists to power in response to the oft-asked uh, question slash 
slogan of the China lobby and the McCarthy period of, quote, who lost China, unquote, making the obvious assumption that China was, quote, ours, unquote, to, quote, lose, unquote, will we answer even the uh, corrupt, uh, fascistic, and uh, uh, virulently anti-communist P.V. Sung, about whom we'll say much more later, uh, said basically if Chiang Kai-shek does not fight the Japanese invaders, the Chinese people will turn to the communists. So ultimately, uh, the, it was Chiang Kai-shek and his narco-fascist Kuomintang who, quote, lost, unquote, China. Uh, again, the role of the golden lily roof in the post-war economy is absolutely fundamental. And as we have seen in many programs, uh, for the record, programs 327, 328, uh, for the record, 446, 451, uh, for, for uh, 501, uh, for, uh, for the record, 688, 689, 1106, 1107, and 1108, uh, among other programs, uh, the Golden Lily Loot was at the core of much of the post or financial system, and uh, basically is the entryway to an enormous, consummately powerful, dark, and deadly milieu. Now, we are going to make an entry into a book. We've already used this several times in the series, and it will be providing much of the information. It is a brilliant book, a very important book. Sadly, it is out of print, so one will have to use uh, the various used book services to get a hold of it. Uh, if someone can somehow get the rights to republish that, I hope they do, and I hope they contact me. I will be happy, more than happy, elated to uh, publicize that. And uh, the inside flap uh, basically uh, summarizes the book. We're going to go into this. Who, by the way, uh, again, after publishing this book, uh, a senior CIA official advised the Seagraves to uh, basically hit the road because a, an assassination team was being put together by the Kuomintang, or in Kuomintang-dominated Taiwan in order to come to the U.S. to kill them. So Sterling and Peggy uh, basically decamped to a sailboat that uh, Sterling built and spent their time uh, sailing around the various places in part to elude that uh, assassination team and others. Now, on the inside flap, we read the following. Who were the Songs, by the capital S-O-O-N-G? They were descendants of a Chinese runaway who grew up in America under the protection of the Methodist Church in the latter part of the 19th century and took the name of Charlie Sung. When Sung returned to China, he made a fortune printing and selling Western Bibles and secretly backed the Republican Revolution of Sun Yat-sen against the Manchu dynasty. Of his six children, one daughter, Ching Ling, married Sun Yat-sen and later supported the Chinese communists against the nationalists until her death in 1981. But all the other sons cast their lot with Chiang Kai-shek. One, Mei Ling, married to General Ruissimo and became the powerful Madame Chang. A Ling married H. H. Kung, a lineal descendant of Confucius and the principal banker of nationalist China. And the eldest, 
son, Harvard-educated P.V. Sung, became the economic wizard of Chang's rise to power, and at various times saved Chang as economic minister, foreign minister, and premier. All of them, except Madame Sun Yat-sen, amassed enormous wealth while millions of Chinese starved or were killed in the long fight against Japan and the equally bitter struggle with Mao. The Sungs dominated America's policies in Asia during the Roosevelt era and for a long time after by capitalizing on the powerful support of Henry Luce, the son of a U.S. missionary in China, whose influential Pond and Life magazines created the myth that the Changs and their supporters were democratic leaders and heroes. On the back of, on the backing of the U.S. China lobby, and on their own political and public relations skills. One more time. The Sungs dominated America's policies in Asia during the Roosevelt era and for a long time after by capitalizing on the powerful support of Henry Luce, the son of a U.S. missionary in China, whose influential time and Life magazines created the myth that the Changs and their supporters were democratic leaders and heroes on the backing of the U.S. China lobby and on their own political and public relations skills. And by the way, there was tremendous economic power wielded by the Sungs in addition to the narcotics trade, and they were deeply involved with that. Uh, they built enormous fortunes. Uh, T.V. Sung himself was at one point the richest man in the world and uh, reported to be the principal stockholder in either uh, the DuPont Corporation or General and or General Motors. Uh, continuing with the flat, what the Sung dynasty does in fascinating detail is reveal for the first time the truth about this family's rise to power and wealth. It describes the long, complex struggle for control within the Republican movement ultimately won by Chang, and it includes evidence of his strong ties to Shanghai's leading gangsters, the result of a secret, the results of a secret FBI investigation ordered by President Truman into the Sun's financial dealings and many other hitherto little known or concealed facts. By the way, I would take part of this with a, a grain of salt, as we will see later. Uh, even as late as 1983, long sections of the uh, report uh, developed by the FBI for President Truman into the Sun's financial empire uh, were redacted. And as we'll see, uh, despite their reputation as uh, consummately uh, admirable uh, Christians and tycoons, uh, the Sungs were enormously corrupt. And in addition to their strong links to Chu uh, Yuasheng and to the narcotics traffic, they were deeply involved in all sorts of corruption. Uh, one of TV's brothers was in charge of the Lend-Lease program during World War II from the U.S. to China, and that was a source of enormous corruption. Uh, not only did the uh, Madame Chang and Chiang Kai-shek and T.V. Sung uh, siphon off 
a lot of that uh, Lend-Lease aid. But uh, some of Chang's Green Gang uh, slash Kuomintang generals uh, bartered the Lend-Lease materials, uh, much of which were uh, transferred to China over the Burma Road or over by U.S. Army Air Force flyers flying over the hub at great cost uh, to them. Uh, it, as uh, someone who grew up uh, with World War II as a major reference point, uh, discovering the truth about what was really going on in World War II was at one level stunning and at another level uh, very sad and disillusioning. I feel a, a lot like uh, the kid when the Chicago White Sox were discovered to have thrown the 1919 World Series and uh, then became earned the nickname the Black Sox after their star first baseman, Shoeless Joe Jackson, a 400 hitter, uh, was walking out of the courtroom. A little kid uh, called out to him and said, Oh, Joe, say it ain't so. And Shoeless Joe Jackson replied, It's true, kid. All of it. And the boy replied through his tears, well, I never would have thunk it. And uh, that's kind of how I feel about a lot of this. I'm like that little boy uh, <laughs> uh, saying through his tears, well, I never would have thunk it. Indeed, not many people would have. And Henry Luce was one of the people who helped to foster the illusion that became the perception of reality uh, in the U.S. and elsewhere. We'll get to that time permitting in this program, if not our next program. Now, uh, of the influence of the narcotics trade in the Chang Kuomintang government, it was fundamental, and of the something of the history of that trade in China, and in particular of the enormous influence of Tu Yuesheng, uh, the real power behind the throne in the Kuomintang government and the single most powerful man in China. At one point when uh, Chang ran afoul of Tu Yuesheng, Tu Yuesheng had Madame Chiang Kai-shek, uh, nay Mei Ling Sung, kidnapped just to show uh, Chiang Kai-shek who was boss. And that was Tu Yuesheng, not Chiang Kai-shek. And talking about the collaboration between Chiang Kai-shek and his Kuomintang and the Japanese uh, in the narcotics traffic, we read the following. One of the richest opium-producing areas was in North China, but this is from the Sun Dynasty, beginning again. One of the richest opium-producing areas was in North China, and when Japan overran these territories in the early 1930s, Chang took a heavy loss financially. The problem was twofold. He lost revenues from his share in the opium trade in that area, and the Japanese were running a very profitable international heroin trade using the raw opium from the conquered Chinese territory. Chang solved the problem by making it illegal for Chinese to use the refined drugs morphine and heroin, and then concluded a trade treaty with Japan to purchase opium from them. As illogical as this may sound, Chang preferred to pay the Japanese a basic price for raw opium from North China, rather than to forfeit all the revenues he could make from it. Otherwise, Japan would smuggle it into Kuomintang-controlled China anyway. By the early 1930s, Opium was taking a backseat to its more powerful products, morphine and heroin. 
the evolution was gradual. Morphine had been widely used by Western missionaries in the late 1800s to cure Chinese opium addicts so that in China the drug became known as Jesus Opium, unquote. Then, heroin, first refined from opium in 1874 by chemists at Bayer Pharmaceuticals in Germany and launched by Bayer as a patent medicine in 1898, showed promise as a treatment for morphine addicts. Chinese first became opium addicts, then graduated to morphine, and then the heroin. And I would add that uh, in the run-up to World War II, uh, Bayer and I.G. Furman developed a synthetic morphine to treat casualties because it was uh, believed that the British would be able to successfully block, the British Navy would be able to successfully blockade Germany and prevent the importation of opium. So they developed a synthetic opium called dolophine, D-O-L-O-P-H-I-N-E, named after Adolf Hitler. After the war, they had this wonderful synthetic morphine. They couldn't exactly uh, market it under the name Dolophine, named after Adolf Hitler, so they changed the name, and it became very successfully marketed. Today, that synthetic morphine, originally named Dolophine, is called Methadone, and it is used to treat heroin addiction. It also, by the way, is extremely addictive itself. Uh, returning again and... Uh, Picking up uh, shortly before where we left off, Chinese first became opium addicts, then graduated to morphine, and then to heroin. By 1924, China was importing enough heroin from Japan each year to provide four strong doses of the drug to every one of the nation's 400 million inhabitants. In that same year, however, the U.S. Congress, which had only recently banned alcohol, banned heroin as a patent medicine. Immediately, American mobsters who were doing a thriving trade in bootlegging plunged into the heroin trade. While European criminal syndicates drew their supplies of opium from the poppy fields of Persia and the so-called Golden Crescent, American mobs found it easier and cheaper to buy from China. In 1931, the League of Nations established international quotas for the production of heroin designed to reduce the supply to strictly medicinal needs. The same year, Bigard too held a great celebration in his own honor to inaugurate an ancestral temple in his native village of Kaochao in Putung across the river from Shanghai. This is to you, Sheng. He was called Bigard too because he had enormous ears. Fireworks exploded for hours on end. 80,000 people turned out for the celebration. Thousands of them, government officials and national dignitaries, invited personally by two. He gave them over half a million Chinese dollars worth of gifts as tokens of the occasion. They reciprocated with equal extravagance. A few, including Generalissimo Chiang Kai-shek, gave two scrolls on which they had personally brushed flowing Chinese calligraphy, eulogizing him for his great services to humanity. The pageant went on for three days. After everyone went home, the ancestral temple two had built became his largest clandestine morphine and heroin factory. 
reminds me a little bit of something we spoke about in our uh, AFA series about the narcotics trade. Uh, when Richard Nixon was a lawyer for PepsiCo, he lobbied fervently for the establishment of a Pepsi-Cola plant in uh, Thailand. It never bothered any Pepsi-Cola. It became the largest heroin refinery in Thailand, in all, actually all of Southeast Asia. Again, uh, knowing what happened when the ancestral temple that two was building uh, actually uh, went into operation. After everyone went home, the ancestral temple two had built became his largest clandestine morphine and heroin factory. The Chinese were blessed by a constant supply of the very, very finest heroin thanks to Tu Yuasheng. It was customary in the streets of any Chinese city simply to buy and swallow pills of relatively pure heroin or sometimes to smoke it in pipes in the form of pink tablets. In America, it was necessary to inject heroin directly into the veins because the drug by then was so ruinously diluted by dealers in order to increase their profit margin, it was impossible to get an effect from the drug any other way but injecting it intravenously. Big Ear, too, used heroin tablets to cure his own opium and morphine addiction, something he bragged about, but in doing so, became a heroin junkie for the rest of his life. To give you an idea of how Tu Yuasheng, Big Ear, too, uh, parlayed his Marco mega financial empire and political empire into uh, civic awards and participation in all sorts of civic and financial and industrial organizations. Uh, we note the following, again, reading from the Song Dynasty. By the mid-1930s, the right honorable Tu Yuasheng was lobbied in Shanghai's who's who in glowing terms. At present, most influential resident, French concession, Shanghai. Well-known public welfare worker, counselor, French Municipal Council. President, Chunghai Bank and Tunghai Bank, Shanghai. Founder and chairman, board of directors, Shangxi Middle School. President, Shanghai Emergency Hospital. Member, Supervisory Committee, General Chamber of Commerce. Managing Director, Wafeng Paper Mill, Hangzhou. Director, Commercial Bank of China, Kangshu and Chekiang Bank, Great China University, Chinese Cotton Goods Exchange, and China Merchants Steam Navigation Company, Shanghai, etc. President, Jinshi Hospital, Ningpo. And Sterling Seagrave goes on to comment, Here was a fine collection of titles and honors. They had accumulated with amazing speed after Shanghai shook. After beginning again, they had accumulated with amazing speed after Shanghai shook took over the Kuomintang and became China's Generalissimo. Immediately following the Shanghai massacre of the Chinese Communist Party, Chang had made Big Ear Two, Pakmark Wang and the third member of the Green Gang Troika, Chang Shaolin, quote, honorary advisors, unquote, with the rank of Major General 
in the Kuomintang army. One more time. Uh, we, in our last program, we spoke about how the Green Gang had developed effective control of the Wampo military, WFAMPOA, headed by Chiang Kai-shek. This gave them, uh, control over the Kuomintang army. So the officer corps and the general staff of the Kuomintang army were at what the, at the same time military officers and also gangsters for the Green Gang. One more time. Immediately following the Shanghai massacre of the Chinese Communist Party, Chiang had made bigger two, pockmarked Wang, and the third member of the Green Gang project, Chiang Shaolin, quote, honorary advisors, unquote, with the rank of Major General in the Kuomintang Army. And we'll come back to uh, the operations of the Kuomintang Army and uh, Chiang Kai-shek and uh, the narcotics trade and Yu Bixing, collaboration with the Japanese, uh, their marketing of U.S. land lease to the Japanese, something which, again, just amazed me uh, when I found out about it. Uh, still more about uh, the narcotics trade. Now, note here uh, the role of the sainted TV song. Again, uh, at one point, the richest man in the world, lionized, as we'll probably have to wait till our next program to talk about, lionized by Henry Luce. Uh, and uh, he, as we will see, in addition to being a financial wizard of Kuomintang, uh, China, was also heavily involved in the narcotics trade of the Kuomintang and the Green Gang. Turning once again to the Song Dynasty. Shanghai had always been the heart of the import-export trade for China, and it was no less true of heroin than of silks or tea. As Mei Ling spoke, that's Madame Chiang Kai-shek, Seven apes in Baba Xu was addressing a, a uh, gathering and blaming the narcotics trade on the Japanese uh, who were using it to suppress the Chinese. That was true up to a point, but her husband and the Kuomintang and the Green Gang were collaborating wholeheartedly, as we have already seen. As Mei Ling spoke, seven eighths of the world's heroin supply was coming from China. In the late 1930s, it was all too apparent even to the U.S. government that large amounts of heroin were being smuggled into America through diplomatic channels from China. One of the ways Chu kept track of his associates was to provide them with bodyguards who served also as traveling companions on overseas trips. For many years, the person who filled this role with TV Sung was Tommy Tong, Tong Haiong. He became Sung's, quote, bodyguard, unquote, and, quote, chauffeur, unquote, and went along with TV on all of his foreign travels. As demonstrated by State Department archives, whenever Chinese government officials journeyed to the United States, the Chinese embassy in Washington prudently went through the exercise of writing a letter to the State Department, double-checking to make certain that, quote, the usual diplomatic privileges, unquote, would be observed about not inspecting their baggage at customs. Tommy Tong supervised TV's baggage handling personally. According to Bureau of Narcotics Records, Tong was a major link to the U.S. heroin trade run by the Kwan Syndicate of Charles Lucky Luciano. 
Chinese heroin smuggled into San Francisco came through Tong and the Chu Chow Weaver in Shanghai's international concession, Wang Sui. Tommy Tong was later appointed China's Chief of Customs for Shanghai, which gave him the best of all possible covers for narcotics smuggling. Tong, reported one Treasury Department source at the time, is acting as agent for Chiang Kai-shek in arranging for the preparation and shipment of the stuff into the United States, unquote. Heroin also moved to the mails. N.S. Wong, the Director General of Chinese Posts, was one of Big Year Two's lieutenants. Wong met regularly with America's West Coast narcotics bosses individually and in 1934 attended a summit meeting with all of them in San Francisco. When American narcotics officials occasionally intercepted the shipment, they found that the five-ounce tins of heroin invariably carried the official stamps of the Chinese government's National Anti-Opium Bureau, which confirmed that the Bureau was merely a cover for China's international heroin trade. The heroin problem finally became so severe in the United States that in the late 1930s, a number of prominent Chinese officials were indicted. The Chinese Consul General in San Francisco was spared conviction for diplomatic reasons, but the president of the hip Singtong in New York was sent to prison when Treasury agents of the Bureau of Narcotics cracked his ring in 1937. What we're going to turn to next is Chu Yuasheng's conversion to Christianity following Chiang Kai-shek's conversion to Christianity. This became a major element of uh, PR sales, so to speak, that, among others, Henry Luce used to sell uh, Chiang Kai-shek and also uh, his regime as good Christian warriors on behalf of the West against uh, the Chinese and the Communists, in, against the, the Japanese and the uh, Communists in particular. Mei Lung again, Mei Ling Sung, by the way, again, is Madame Chiang Kai-shek, the sister of Bokiwi Sung, and A Ling Sung, who was married to H. H. Kung, uh, and was also very close to, uh, to Yuasheng, as we looked at in our last program, their children grew up together. Mei Ling's gullibility about Japan's evil narcotics traffic can be measured by her judgment in 1936, when Big Ear Two decided to follow Chang's lead and become a Christian. Mei Ling was genuinely impressed. She found reason to take heart. Tu was so much a member of the Song family that he took his, quote, religious instruction, unquote, under Methodist ministers at the home of A. Ling and H. H. Kung, attending regular prayer meetings and Bible classes at the mansion on the route de Seis, S-U-I-Y-E-S. When Big Year Two was ready to take up the cross, unquote, the baptism was performed at Charlie Sung's old church. There is no record of lightning immediately striking the church or of the baptismal water turning green, but Mei Ling is reported to have said earnestly a few weeks after the ceremony, Tu Yuasheng is becoming a real Christian because ever since he was baptized, there has been a marked Decrease in kidnapping cases in Shanghai. Her observation evidently elicited dry witticisms throughout the French concession. By the way, uh, Tu Yuasheng was uh, selling drugs to the French and marketing them through elements of the French government and the Corsican gangsters when there was uh, 
something of a double cross. Uh, he basically poisoned the French Consul General and the pop Corsican gangster. So uh, that was the, the reference there. And as mentioned there, uh, Tu Yuesheng followed Chiang Kai-shek into Christianity. Uh, and uh, Sterling Seagrave writes about that. Less than two years after their wedding, Mei Ling collected on Chiang's promise by pushing him into a public bap- baptism, skipping down. Chang was baptized by the Reverend Z. P. Kong, K-A-U-N-G, at Charlie Sung's church on October 23rd, 1930. News of the event was received with astonishment in China, followed by snide disbelief. But among foreigners, especially Americans, there was an audible sigh of approval. After eight years of severe anti-Christian agitation in China, here was a sign that the work of the missionaries was going to be made easier, the cross lighter to bear. Mei Ling, whose most distinctive characteristic was the capacity to believe whatever she wanted to believe, evidently took the baptism as an act of sincerity. And again, of Henry Luce uh, of Time Incorporated, the publisher of Time and Life magazines, uh, the, the fellow, by the way, whose magazine purchased and then uh, edited the Zapruder film of the assassination of JFK. It appears that actually some, certainly some frames of the Zapruder film were taken out. At one point, uh, many of the eyewitnesses stated that the uh, President Kennedy's fatal motorcade actually came to a dead stop, giving the assassins a stationary target at which to shoot. But uh, Henry Luce has had an enormous influence on the development of America, and the conversion to Christianity of both Chiang Kai-shek and Tu Yuesheng uh, sold very well with Henry Luce, who himself was the son of uh, Christian missionaries in China and uh, spent a lot of his youth there. On June 26, 1939, Luce's Time magazine talked about the exhausted state of European powers that were, quote, in no position to take the part of the white man's burden in Asia on their sagging shoulders, unquote. Life magazine chimed in, quote, The world now waits to see whether China and its generalissimo have the moral and material stamina to go on fighting Japan. Not many people have the courage to be a lost cause, unquote. And Chang's prospects are now worse than were ever those of the American Revolution's George Washington. Chiang Kai-shek has heretofore shown himself a man of remarkable courage and resolution. He proved, while kidnapped by communists at Xi'an two years ago, that he is not afraid of death. He is a converted Methodist who has now for solace the examples of tribulation in the Christian Bible, unquote. And uh, Sterling Seagrave goes on to write, Chang's only similarity to George Washington was false teeth. But in this pious campaign, he was portrayed as a heroic Christian soldier holding the Bible in one hand while fighting off Reds and Japs with the other. Americans could not resist the appeal of, of a Christian underdog, particularly one who looked death in the eye and defied, quote, communists, unquote, at Sion. The Generalissimo was fighting the good fight and needed help. It was time, Luce implied, to send in the U.S. Cavalry. By the way, the kidnapping at Xi'an was one, uh, one of uh, the Kuomintang warlords uh, actually formed a military alliance with the Chinese communists to fight together against 
the Japanese. Uh, Chiang Kai-shek vetoed that because he only wanted to fight the Chinese communists and not the Japanese, so they formed an alliance and actually kidnapped Chiang Kai-shek. That is the uh, reference there. And uh, we're going to talk about the uh, way in which uh, Henry Luce idolized uh, the Sung family, and uh, T.V. Sung in particular. Uh, again, it was not only his uh, perceived Christianity, but uh, well, it was not only the Christianity of the uh, Kuomintang, Chiang Kai-shek, and Julia Wusheng, but as we will see in our next program, uh, Henry Luce himself was an admirer of fascism and saw business tycoons as basically the American equivalent of the fascist strongman. Give you an idea of the, quote, Christianity, unquote, of TV. So at one point, he was a Harvard graduate and the richest man in the world at one point, and uh, reported to be the largest stockholder in DuPont and or General Motors at one point. To minimize confrontations between the Green Gang and Nanking, there had to be careful liaison between their opium field personnel. Nanking sanctioned the close cooperation of both its Navy and police forces with the Green Gang. Demand even then outstripped domestic supply. Shanghai police reports indicate that in 1930, TV Sung personally arranged with two to deliver 700 cases of Persian opium to Shanghai under Kuomintang military protection to supplement depleted Chinese stocks. All parties involved in setting up the shipment and protecting it during transit, including TV, received fees. Time magazine, published by Henry Luce, carried a breezy little squib in April of 1931 about TV's plans for opium in the Nanking Treasury. Finance Minister T.V. Sung cheerfully declared last week that China will soon have, quote, a new and realistic opium policy, unquote. A, quote, realistic opium policy, according to Minister Sung, cannot be one of prohibition. Consequently, Chinese Treasury officials have been sent to Formosa to study Japan's opium system, restricted sales under government monopoly. If the shrewd Minister Sung does harness opium to his Treasury chariot, he may find a way to balance the Chinese budget for some time to come. And uh, talking uh, about uh, <laughs> the collaboration between two, uh, Big Ear Two and uh, and uh, TV Sung, because of the complexity of trying to divide the sources, growing areas, transportation, processing responsibilities, and so forth, the only sensible solution was to split the overall take with to Yuasheng. Accordingly, the General Isano had a long meeting with two in which he began by appointing the gang boss as chief communist suppression agent for Shanghai, which gave two an official sanction to spill all the blood he wanted legally. This was something two needed very badly because he was in the midst of a campaign to clean up his public image. Shang cut a deal with two to team up on opium. The Green Gang would be given full government protection for all shipments and all processing factory operations. The gang would also have veto power over the selection of government monopoly officials and would take a lion's share of the proceeds. In return, the gang agreed to pay Nanking six million Chinese dollars as a down payment on the government's anticipated share of the next take. Note that uh, Tu Yuasheng was named chief 
communist suppression agent for Shanghai. That was one of the things that endeared him to Henry Luce. We will uh, pick up the rest of this or more of this in our next program. However, we are all out of time. This concludes for the record program number 1198. The Narco-Fascism of Chiang Kai-shek and the Kuomintang, Part 5. This is being recorded on August 11th of the year 2021. I'm Dave Emery. Have fun.